Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for these words to us, the challenge of them. We pray that you would um, enlighten us and send your spirit to make these words plain and to encourage us to walk with Jesus Christ more nearly and dearly. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Um, Like most people, I think if I asked you to think back on your primary school days, you would not have to think too hard about a moment that caused some anxiety. Perhaps it was your first time when you had to give a presentation in front of the class, you know, public speaking. Um, Those who research human beings say that the number one fear of human beings is public speaking, and the second is death which means that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, um, which is a bit odd, but that's the way that human beings work. If I think back to my own life, and I think of this story from Matthew's Gospel about Jesus um, asking this question to the disciples, it brings up in me those memories of the dreaded pop quiz. Did you have the dreaded pop quiz when you were at school? This was a big thing in America, and it was kind of almost militaristic in some ways. I remember year four, Mrs. Wood, she was uh, two years away from retirement, and boy, did it show. Uh, and she, um, she, you know, the thing I remember is that she smelled like uh, a combination of spearmint and medicine. I don't know, but I remember being, you know, eight years old or whatever and knowing that there was something off there. And we would come in from recess and we would have to stand behind our desk, behind our chairs, and she would pepper the class with uh, multiplication questions. You know, we needed to memorize our basic facts, our times tables. And so she would yell out, you know, what's six times eight? And somebody would raise their hand. And if nobody raised their hand, she would call on somebody. And that was enough to make me, you know, at the age of eight years old, my, my I had heart palpitations <laughs> because I was so afraid. And then it got worse when I was getting out of primary school into intermediate where you'd left the confines of the self-enclosed classroom where you had one teacher that taught you everything and every 50 minutes you suddenly had to change classes and you had now seven or eight teachers that you had to get used to. And of course, um, I had a geography teacher, year seven, Mr. Hurst, who had spent his entire life in the Marine Corps and boy did it show. Um, And he had taken up teaching in retirement because he couldn't stay at home, could he? And, um, and it was the same thing. We would have to stand behind our desks. And he would pepper us with questions about uh, states and their capitals. We had to memorize the states and their capital city. Now I have to tell you, after memorizing all of these, I probably still know most of them by heart. But I have never had to use this information in my entire life, ever. But I know Cheyenne, capital of Wyoming State, Uh, Washington State, capital, Olympia, not Seattle. Uh, New York, capital of New York State is not New York City, it's Albany. Very good. See, you had to memorize these things too. You had Mr. Hurst as well. Um, So it was a bit of a drama and a bit, you know, it kind of got the, the blood pumping and I got a bit nervous around these things. And it's the stuff that still gives me nightmares because he would obviously being a Marine Corps man, he would refer to all of us, you know, all of us at the age of, what, 11 or 12, by our surname and with a title. Mr. Martinez, he would say. 
What is the answer to my question? It would just strike fear right into the middle of my heart. Well, if you look at our passage this morning with Jesus and the disciples, I feel, from the disciples' point of view, it might have felt a bit like a pop quiz, a bit like Jesus was quizzing them because he had just been in Caesarea Philippi. They've been traveling around. Caesarea Philippi is a very interesting place. It actually bears the name of Caesar, um, and so it's, it's a place that's highly aligned to Roman imperialism. Uh, the people are very much pro-Roman imperialism. And so here he is with his disciples, and he's asking this question, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And, of course, back in these days, it's like asking the question, you know, who is the king on the throne? Who's in charge? And you better have the right answer. If I went to Washington, D.C., and I said, who is the legitimate president of the United States? They would probably would say one thing. If I went to West Palm Beach and Mar-a-Lago and I asked that question, I might get some people who were a bit reticent to say the wrong thing. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in this passage this morning. These disciples aren't really sure what they should say. So they basically say what they've heard. Oh, some people say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Some say you're Jeremiah. And he said, no, no, but who do you, who do you say that I am? I don't want to hear what other people say. I want to know what you say. What do you believe? And the disciples obviously go quiet. And if we had a, uh, you know, if we had the notes or if this scene, if we had the running script of this scene where we could read the stage directions, wouldn't it be so fascinating Right to read the parenthetical stage directions. And the disciples averted their eyes and started kicking the ground and moving the gravel around and waited for Jesus to carry on and move on. But alas, we don't have that. And that's exactly the point of the story. He asked the question, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? That I am? And however fallible he might be, Peter pipes up. And Peter pipes up with his confession. Um, and that's one of the, also one of the interesting parts of the story. And uh, as, he, um, as he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus is elated with this answer. Right? He calls him by his given name, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Um, and then he renames him Peter, the rock. And thank goodness for Peter. Right or wrong, he is always the first one out of the gate. He's always the first one to raise his hand. He's the first to fire and then aim. (laughs) You know, it's just part of his personality. And some of us are like this, and some of us have met people like this, who speak first and think second, and that's Peter. And he's the first to flee as well. He's the first to, um, to, to be completely missing in action when Jesus is arrested. He's brave when it counts, though. Because he's the first to drop his nets, and he's the first to get out of the boat and try to walk on water. He's the first to confess with his mouth that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And Jesus appreciates this trying. He appreciates this effort more than anything. And he names him the rock that the church will be built on, and he hands him the keys to the kingdom. I think it's important to realize that for the rest of the disciples, they knew a bit about Peter, and they knew that he was a character. And so, you know, again, if we had the stage directions, they might have just pushed him out front to answer the question himself. Go on, Peter, you've always got something to say. After all, he's the one who sinks halfway into his water walk. He's a bit reckless. 
He's a little bit impulsive. And in the end, when it counts, he's the first one to deny that he even knows Jesus. And Jesus knows this about Peter. And he doesn't tell Peter that he has the right answer because he says that the answer that he has isn't even his own. He says, you didn't think about this. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And back in the old days, in the first century, this this statement, flesh and blood, was basically all of our human mental faculties, all of our ability. He didn't reason his way to see that Jesus was the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. It was revealed to him. It was a revelation. This was opened up to Jesus, to Peter, rather, about Jesus' identity. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, when you think about do we have to have the right answer, the right dogma, do we have to spout the right line? And Jesus is like, actually, as much as you try to reason your way towards it, you're going to miss the point. This is something that you have to just open yourself up to. God has to give it to you. God's got to put it in your head. God's got to put it in your heart. Are you the type of person that will open yourselves up to God? right? That's the challenge in some ways. Not how smart are you, how many books of theology, how many degrees or post-nominals do you have, but are you the kind of person who opens themselves up to what God is showing you? The curtain that's being pulled back on the reality that God wants to show you. Now, if you ask me, there's a little bit of Peter in each and every one of us. I'd like to think there's a little bit of rebellion, rebelliousness in each of us, as well as recklessness, holy recklessness in some ways, where the, you know. And there are these moments, I think, that align with this recognition that Peter has of the divine, where we do open ourselves up and suddenly we realize, actually, there's something, there's another level here. There's something else going on. I can feel it in my bones. However, we have to also take note that Peter's confession was followed just a few verses later with a very strong rebuke. By Jesus. Get behind me, Satan, he tells Peter just a little while later. The rock ends up being a stumbling block or a stone in Jesus' sandals. And I think the same is true for us. When I think about Peter in this light, I think it's honestly something that brings me a bit of hope to know that right there at the very beginning of the church, it was founded on imperfection and recklessness and a strong sense of this might not work out. This person's a bit fickle, and that's our lineage, whether we like it or not. It isn't one of perfection and being super knowledgeable and always doing the right thing. It isn't one of moral upstanding purity. It's one of complicated humanity. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going to build my church. That's what I'm going to give the keys of the kingdom to. These days, this question that Jesus asked the disciples feels even more impossible for us as modern people. It feels a bit like if Jesus were in this room and he asked, who do you say that I am? I think Mr. Hurst had walked into the room and I'd be fumbling my words. It's a tricky one for us as modern people because we live in a secular age. We live in a secular country. We live in a place that was very much founded around religious mores and ideas but over the last 150 years has moved far away from those things. Charles Taylor, an eminent philosopher, has written a really huge book on secularism called A Secular Age, and one of the main things that he says in there is that in the last 500 years, one of the most important things that we need to realize that have changed is not that people just don't believe anymore, but that the conditions of belief have changed, that it's harder to believe in just about anything. So if you're an atheist 
one of the things that you have to cope with is that you're constantly flirting with belief. And if you're somebody who's a believer, one of the things that you're nagged by is that this all might not be true. That's what it means to live in the world that we walk through, right? The conditions of belief have changed, right? The ground in which we walk on is not as firm as it once was for our forebears. And so when we are faced with the question like, who do you say that I am? We are prone to doubt. We're prone to be faithful but yet cynical. We're taught from a very early age that the things that matter most to us ought to be held very loosely. They ought not to cause friction in public. And the things that we believe most should all be regarded as private. Private. So imagine if Peter was here today answering that question. It would sound something like this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But that's just my personal opinion. It's the water we're swimming in nowadays. It's hard to sustain a belief in just about anything. But in that way, Peter is sort of a first out of the gate kind of character. His trajectory of confession and cowardice, the story of his life, ought to feel more like a mirror to us than it is an example of moral failure like a mirror, than it is a moral failure. Now, this all can sound horribly depressing, I'm sure. That is, unless you take into consideration the last chapter of Peter's story with Jesus. And for that story, you're not going to get it in the Gospel of Matthew. You've got to go to the Gospel of John. And in that story, Peter is on a beach cooking some fish, and Jesus suddenly appears. And Jesus asks him a question And he doesn't ask him the question that we think is the most important, which is, who do you say that I am? He asks them the most important question. Do you know what it is? Do you love me? He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter says three times, you know that I love you, Lord. And so what is Jesus' response to that? Each time he says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. If you love me, then feed my sheep. That answer is an interesting one. It's as if Jesus has come to understand and he wants Peter to understand and perhaps all of us to understand that what we say with our mouths may be difficult and fragile and contingent, but it's always less important than what we do with our lives. Let me say that one more time. What we say with our mouths that we believe is always less important than what we actually do with our lives because it's our lives that will speak the loudest to those in the world. And when we think about the questions, we think about our relationship with Jesus, and we think about, wow, what if Jesus showed up and he asked me, who do you say that I am? And your heart starts racing, and you start sweating a little bit because you feel like there's a pop quiz on its way. That's when we have to remember the most important question that Jesus ever asked Peter. And Peter, in Jesus is asking us that question this morning, I think. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's not good enough for us to respond, of course you know that I do. Because Jesus' response to that is, well then, show it in the way that you live your life. This story is a reminder that we exist in good company. That we have these characters like Peter who go before us and that they mirror some of the 
hardships of our own faith. And yet they allow this wonderful space to open up where we can listen, if we will, to the voice of Jesus saying, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Don't just say it with your lips. Show the world with your lives. May God give us the grace and the faith to do that. Amen.